This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is sponsored by the Alliance Defending Freedom Church Alliance. The ADF Church Alliance provides more than 3,200 member churches with legal support for religious freedom issues. For more information, go to adfchurchalliance.org. This is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, World Relief's Jenny Yang is here to join us to discuss refugees. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mark Galley. Hello. Hey, Mark. Good to be back. I've been gone for a week. Do you think listeners knew that you were gone? I think so. I think you were on two weeks, actually. You missed a couple. Oh, yeah. All right. Who is joining us today? Uh, Joining us today is Jenny Yang. Uh, She provides oversight for all advocacy initiatives and policy positions at World Relief. She's worked in the resettlement section of World Relief as the senior case manager and East Asia program officer, where she focused on advocacy for refugees in the East Asia region and managed the entire refugee caseload for World Relief. She is co-author of Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate, and was named as one of the 50 women to watch by Christianity Today. I would add the addendum, she's also one of the 50 women to listen to, and that's why you listeners will be graced by her words today. Hi, Jenny. Hi, it's great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. We are really excited that you are here on our show, and yeah. I know that we both had the chance to meet you in person before, and so it's always fun to have friends come on and join us. Yeah, well, I know there is so much happening right now. Um, I actually just got back from maternity leave, um, so this is my first podcast, actually, since coming back, so it feels great to connect with you all again. Absolutely. All right. Well, I know that we've told our listeners we're going to talk about refugees, and so I'm just going to get into the specifics of our conversation today. Several years ago, the Obama administration set a target of resettling more than 100,000 refugees in fiscal year 2017, the highest goal since 1995. This week, Obama's predecessor, President Trump, will cap the number of refugees that can be resettled in the United States next year at 30,000. Meanwhile, there are more than 25 million people who the United Nations considers refugees and more than 68 million people who have been displaced from their homelands in total around the globe. This is the highest number since World War II. So what is behind the U.S.'s latest refugee policy and what is happening at a global level to solve the refugee crisis? That is what we are going to talk about today on the show. So before we get into our discussion about refugees, I want to remind everyone that you can support the podcast by going to morect.com slash podcasts. That's morect.com slash podcasts. And when you are supporting the Ministry of Christianity Today, part of what you are supporting is our ability to hopefully change hearts and minds, which, Mark, I understand you were in the business of doing last week. Yes. uh, We took a trip to New York to have a 
dinner with some potential donors to introduce them to what Christianity Today is about. That went splendidly. Then we spent some time with the Grace and Mercy Foundation, which, among other things, hosts come-as-you-are lunches in which people gather. Uh, they serve lunch there as well, and they, they listen to Scripture read aloud together. In, they, they, they sit in silence while there is this audio production. Wait, are you listening to a recording or is it a person? A recording. Okay. Uh huh. And then we get up and we leave. And there's something really in a long passage of Scripture, two or three chapters. So what did you listen open, to? We listened to the passage leading up to the Ten Commandments, which includes a number of, well, Levitical laws. Then we listened to a couple chapters in uh, the Gospel. And what's interesting about reading Scripture at that length and just being quiet and not having an opportunity like me, a talker, to talk and explain or interpret or ask questions, it forces you, in a sense, just to submit to the Word of God. It's a very powerful experience. It doesn't sound like it would be, but it really is. And it was that was great to be with them. And then we went off to Houghton College, where we talked about uh, beautiful orthodoxy, and I gave the chapel talk. Uh, what a delightful group of students there. Uh, we They were asked uh, what changes they think the church should be participating in the next 50 years, and I took extensive notes and so much of it dovetails with what CT is trying to do. So it felt really good to be to know we were in touch with the type of concerns that people out on the out in the real world were were concerned about. Awesome! Thanks for sharing all of that. And that's really cool about being able to listen to scripture being read. I completely agree, though, because I think you and me would probably both confess to skimming things sometimes. And when you listen to something, you cannot skim. Yeah, it's just word by word. Yeah, exactly. All right. So again, if you would like to support Christianity Today, would like to support this podcast, Quick to Listen, you can do so by going to morect.com slash podcasts. That's morect.com slash podcasts. Thank you to everyone who financially supports this podcast. We truly appreciate you guys. All right. So Mark, I would love to hear your gut check to this recent news about the White House capping the number of refugees that can be resettled to 30,000 people. Well, naturally, it was very discouraging. I have a personal vested interest even more more deeply than altruism. <laughs> that is to say, my wife works for World Relief, helping resettle refugees here in the community. So I know that affects her own sense of call, her office's sense of call, so that that could mean cuts there, who knows. But it also got me to thinking, because I just read a, read a book on uh, the refugee crisis worldwide, uh, how does this this compare with what's going on in the rest of the world in other nations and what they feel is their responsibilities for refugees? What are the countries that are doing it well? What are the countries that are really stumbling on it? So I began to think globally about it. And so I'm glad we're, we have Jenny on to help us think about that today. I think I also kind of had a visceral reaction to this news. I think one of the strangest things that's happened since I've become an adult, if I can say that, is I've watched the world of refugee resettlement become politicized. I served as a case manager for during an internship when I was in college, and it was just a program that existed. And I've seen it become political football and seen something that seems like an actually really great way to bring people that are in pretty dire conditions or at least languishing, you know, where they can't get on in their life, you know, and give them a different start here. Yeah, I, I, I've watched churches and individuals really be able to reach out to these communities and help them thrive in the U.S. and watch this shut down what I understand to be a program that actually works really well for reasons that are not entirely clear. And I definitely don't have a lot of good faith in whatever, I don't know, answers are provided by the government. So <laughs> I'm 
maybe looking forward to some <laughs> sort of way to feel like this issue can be more complexified or nuanced, I guess, because otherwise I'll just be mad. Yeah. So that's kind of how I feel. Jenny, I'm I'm glad that you're going to be on this show with us. And I kind of want to back up a little bit because I know that there are different terms that we're going to throw around while we're recording the show. And one of them is just refugee, which is not just a term that's giving to people willy-nilly. It's actually kind of a status that's conferred on people by the UN, if I understand correctly. So maybe we can just start there. What is a refugee and who gets to count as one? Sure. Well, the U.S. has a standard legal definition of who is a refugee. And basically, um, a refugee in U.S. terms is someone who has a well-founded fear of persecution based on five grounds, based on your race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. And so there's a couple of things about the definition of a refugee that I think is important to know. Uh, the first is that you have to be outside of your country of origin. So, for example, if you're a Syrian individual who's affected by the conflict and you move to another part of Syria, you're not technically a refugee. You're considered an internally displaced person. But if you're an individual from Syria who then flees across a border into Jordan, another country, then you are qualified as a refugee because you have left your country of origin. Um, the second thing about refugees is that you have to have a well-founded fear of persecution based on these five grounds, but you are technically not a refugee if you're fleeing poverty or if you're fleeing a natural disaster. So for example, if there's an earthquake in Haiti and individuals from Haiti were to flee to the United States, you're not actually considered a refugee. Nor if you're an individual from somewhere in Central America and you're fleeing just poverty, um, economic circumstances, and you come to the United States, you're not actually also considered a refugee. So the definition is pretty narrow in terms of who qualifies as a refugee, and that's really served the United States in terms of whom we admit as refugees through the, through the Refugee Emissions Program. You were talking about Central America, and obviously we know there's been many people who have been fleeing that part of the world. Some of them are actually fleeing violence through gangs that they're facing. That also does not count either? Yeah, well, it depends because um, what's actually happened over the past several years has been, it's caught a lot of people's attention. And so um, individuals from um, north of Central America actually made up 43% of the asylum claims in the United States. And so most of them are coming from Salvadorans, Guatemalans, and Hondurans. And so previously to that, a lot of Central Americans were coming to the U.S. fleeing, not fleeing, but actually seeking economic opportunity. But because what we're seeing right now politically in Central America is just an increase in homicides, an increase in generalized violence, that many of these individuals are seeking asylum in the U.S. and trying to actually meet that definition of fleeing well-founded fear of persecution uh, what's been interesting, though, is that the attorney general just a few months ago actually um, made a decision where he basically said that individuals who are fleeing such violence cannot actually qualify for asylum. So those who are fleeing private violence, including those fleeing gang violence or domestic violence, he basically determined should not be given asylum based on that definition. So the attorney general is trying to alter this definition of asylum, whereas previous case law stated that individuals who flee gang violence and even domestic violence can qualify and generally are granted asylum in the United States of America. So even as we're seeing people fleeing such conditions that previously qualified for asylum in the United States, we may be seeing an, a decline in the number of 
of cases that are admitted for asylum in the U.S. because of this changing definition. So when I think of refugees, I often think of people who are coming here on an airplane and who have gone through multiple security checks before they arrived in the United States. That's kind of the definition that I've put in my head. And then when I think of asylum seekers, I think of people who came here either crossed the border without the correct paperwork or came here on a tourist visa and then filed for asylum. Is that Are those like correct images I should have in my head? Yeah. So normally for an asylum seeker, you're an individual who crosses a, a border and seeks the protection of that specific country to which you're entering. So if there is someone who's crossing a United States border and they apply within U.S. Uh, law to basically be granted protection, then that is that individual is considered an asylum seeker. They're seeking the protection of the United States of America. A refugee technically is someone who is granted that that definition by an outside body. So um, oftentimes it was the United Nations, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, UNHCR, or it was the country to which that person first fled from which they derived that definition. So that individual is technically a refugee. And then the United States has a program, the U.S. Refugee Missions Program, that allows certain refugees to be admitted to the United States of America. So it really is dependent on location. Um, so again, asylum seekers are individuals who are seeking the protection of the United States directly, whereas a refugee oftentimes was granted that status already in their situation and circumstances overseas, and then oftentimes are identified to be uh, resettled to the United States of America. Jenny, I want to kind of talk about persecuted Christians. So if I recall correctly, as the war in Syria began and began to really become something that we were talking about on a daily basis here in the United States, and there began to be this giant exodus of Syrians who were leaving the country, there was a lot of criticism over, there was a lot of criticism towards the Obama administration for the low numbers of Syrian Christians that we were seeing in the refugee numbers that came over overall. And I just remember covering that for the last couple of years of the Obama administration. I do know that in general, many of the refugees that come over are Christians. And you had talked even earlier about how this administration has made religious freedom a really important issue and how that kind of intersects with some of the work that you guys are doing. So I guess my question here is, to what extent is this refugee crisis an issue of also helping persecuted Christians? The issue of refugees is fundamentally tied to persecution because oftentimes when you have persecuted believers, they cannot have protection within their uh, countries of origin. They have to flee across the border. And you have a lot of persecuted Christians that are refugees and become refugees because of their faith. And so in 2001, uh, the United States started noting the religious affiliation of the refugees that were being resettled to the United States. And what we found is that the majority of refugees that were coming into the United States were Christian refugees, which meant that many of the individuals that were being resettled are coming from places in which they're either the minority religion or in which they were persecuted because of their faith. I think worldwide, what we're seeing is that we we see um, a severity of the persecution that Christians are facing um, in places in Africa and Asia and in the Middle East. And I think what's what's really concerning, though, about this decline in the refugee emission ceiling is that this is actually impacting some of the most vulnerable persecuted refugees, um, Christian refugees around the world. The, the countries from which 
refugee Christians are the most persecuted are the countries from which refugees are fleeing from. And so you talk about places like Iraq and Iran and Syria and even Burma. These are places in which it's really difficult for many Christians to live um, freely with their faith. Um, these are places where pastors, where their churches have been burned down, where individuals are specifically targeted because of their Christianity, which is perceived oftentimes to be a Western religion. And yet these are the countries from which um, it's been extremely difficult for refugees to come in from. Uh, there was, in 2017, a series of executive orders by the president um, that basically banned certain individuals from coming into the United States, including Iranians and Iraqis, Syrians, and others. Um, so just as an example, um, in 2016, we saw uh, 1,600 Iranian refugees coming into the United States. Um, so that's around 1,600 Iranian refugees that came in um, in 2016. But in 2018, basically from January through September, we saw five. It just speaks to the fact that many of these individuals who are fleeing religious persecution are not able to access the protection of the United States of America. Um, another case example is Iraqis. In 2016, from, November, from January through uh, September 11th, we saw 976 individuals coming into the United States. But this year, in 2018, we only saw 18 individuals. And all of this is because of the executive orders that have been issued um, consecutively in 2017. And again, these are the countries from which there are a high number of refugees that have been persecuted for their faith. And yet these are the places from which we're not seeing uh, a large arrival of refugees. And so I believe that if the White House is serious about promoting international religious freedom, it should do so in the fullest in terms of working with foreign countries to ensure that people can stay and practice their faith freely there. But I think that refugee emissions and refugee protections should be a core part of that agenda. And the way that the policies have been implemented over the past few years regarding refugee emissions to the U.S., speaks to the fact that I don't think there's a concerted understanding of how this program can actually promote international religious freedom by protecting those who have fled persecution to come into the United States. One of the stories we've actually been following is the story of about 100 Iranian refugees, many of whom are Christians, who were invited to resettle to the U.S. a couple of years ago and have since been denied entry and have are kind of in legal limbo in Vienna, Austria. So if people are interested in kind of following how that's playing out, that's something that we've covered at length on our website as well. Hey, this is Morgan, and today I'm speaking with Focus on the Families Education Issues Director Candy Cushman about Bring Your Bible to School Day, which this year is on October 4th. So, Candy, can you tell me an encouraging story you've heard from a student who brought their Bible to school? I love the story from Carson, a fifth grader in Indiana. Carson's amazing. I think he's going to be president one day. But throughout the school year, there had been this bully that had been mocking the Christian students and saying, you know, what you guys believe is stupid. That's just silly. Carson prayed with his mom because he was sort of geared up for this encounter and he gets on the bus with his little Bibles and the first person of course he encounters is this kid but as God would have it instead of doing anything that was aggressive the kid just said hey I'd like to have one of those and so he was the first kid to ask Carson for a Bible and then they ended up having this whole engagement and conversations and 
And now this kid is actually reading his Bible and talking to Carson about it. We have these kids that just take the resources that we make available for free and at least these things in their own school and just put their own spin on it. It's pretty amazing. So if people want to see some of these stories and the students talking on the videos themselves, I would encourage them just to go to bringyourbible.org. There is a lot of great information about students' rights and tips for parents and teachers as well. So that's bringyourbible.org. Jenny, what are the five biggest refugee sending countries? And can you give us you know, an overview of the crisis that is happening in each of those countries that is perpetuating this refugee crisis? The two-thirds of all refugees actually come from just five countries. It's Syria, Afghanistan, South Sudan, Myanmar, and Somalia. And so the Syrian conflict we know has produced the world's largest number of refugees. Um, that's 6.3 million refugees, which basically makes up about a third of the refugee population. This number is actually a 14% increase from 2014. And so the conflict in Syria has been ongoing and it's been um, exacerbated. And we've seen the images in the news um, and it's produced the world's largest number of refugees. Um, Afghanistan is uh, has the conflict there has been happening for over 40 years now. Um, and Pakistan has hosted over a million Afghan refugees in their country pretty much since the 1980s. And so the conflict in Afghanistan still continues. Um, South Sudan is a place actually where World Relief works. We've had operations, humanitarian assistance program in South Sudan. And even while we're helping people in South Sudan, we also know that many are forced to flee across the border. And so um, we are seeing a large number of refugees from South Sudan fleeing as well. And Myanmar has has been in the news because of the Rohingya refugee crisis. These are predominantly Muslim refugees who are um, not being granted citizenship or a place to reside in Myanmar. And so many of them have been experiencing military conflict and are being forced to flee across the border into Bangladesh and other countries. And so that's also been the, the largest number of individuals that are fleeing from Myanmar have happened in the past, pretty much since August of 2017. And so that's when the conflict really started being exacerbated. And then Somalia is a fifth country in which we're seeing, again, a large number of individuals that are fleeing the, the, the conflict there. Um, so these are the places from which we're seeing ongoing flows of refugees into local communities in those regions. And it's interesting to note because the world's refugee population really hails from its least developed nations, um, with nine of the 10 most common countries of origin falling into this category. So refugees oftentimes are fleeing from places of conflict. They're going into communities in which they're not very well developed, uh, which is creating um, challenges for those host countries as well. What would you say are the five countries who are receiving refugees in a way that you consider admirable and hold up a model that we can imitate? Well, a few years ago, I actually went to Jordan to visit with uh, the refugee and, and understand what's happening there. And I think Jordan is doing a commendable job um, to host the refugees there. Now, most of the refugees in Jordan are not in refugee camps. They're actually in cities and in urban areas. And so they have the opportunity um, oftentimes to work in the informal marketplace. Um, the, the Syrian children have been able to go to schools um, and access emergency medical attention. And so uh, when I was there, I was impressed because even talking to the Jordanian people, they don't see it as a huge 
burden. I think a lot of the Jordanian people have been extremely generous. In fact, one taxi driver I talked with said, oh, we're people who who are pretty much made up of refugees from the Palestinians to the Iraqis to the Syrians to Iranians. There's just been a a constant flow of of individuals that have come into Jordan. And what's interesting about um, Syrian refugees flowing into Jordan is that the Syrian Syria and Jordan were not actually friendly countries. In fact, um, there's high, there's a lot of reasons why Jordanians should be distrustful of, of Syrians, and yet they've been so welcoming of Syrians um, and actually providing them with some basic assistance. And so I think Jordan is doing really a commendable job, given the, the magnitude of the crisis that is um, happening there. Um, just Germany in the past few years um, with um, Angela Merkel there has really done a tremendous job to process asylum applications to their country. In one year, they received over 500,000 asylum applications, mostly of, of Syrian refugees and others that were coming in um, several years ago to seek asylum. And, and the chancellor was really forthright in saying that these are individuals who are welcome in Germany. And she was specifically politically, it was there was a cost, I think, to her politically to, to say such things. But what we know is that um, Germany has been very generous in in processing these asylum applications and doing as much as they can to help the Syrian refugees that were arriving to their borders as well. I think um, in 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 Africa, Ethiopia has actually been a country that has not just welcomed the many refugees, but have actually in their country's laws have allowed many refugees to become naturalized citizens. Um, and so Ethiopia has received a lot of Eritrean refugees, Somali refugees, Sudanese refugees. Um, and they're actively, their government is actively working to allow some of these refugees to be allowed to work legally in their local economy. And so a lot of these countries, Ethiopia, Jordan, Lebanon, and other places are countries, again, in which they're not f- fully as well developed as the U.S. Their economies are a lot smaller. And yet in terms of policy and services, they're actually doing significantly more in terms of per capita to help refugees that are arriving to their shore. Um, a lot of Ethiopians and Germans and others have really been welcoming in terms of their attitudes, in terms of their interactions with the refugees, has a significant impact on the refugees themselves. And so I think these are some countries that have received a lot of refugees, but ones in which they are um, doing a lot, I think, to to make sure that they respond as generously as possible. So I mentioned that a couple of years ago, the Obama administration had said, you know, we would be open in this country to resettling more than 100,000 people. And since the Trump administration has come into office, we have seen that number decrease every year of the presidency. What are the rationales that the administration is using to um, explain why that number has fallen, even though we know that the refugee crisis around the world is not something that's necessarily changed or improved in any way? Yeah, I think that the number and the announcement of the 30,000 refugees is really disappointing. And it it really speaks to what I believe is a um, slow disintegration and dismantling of one of the strongest humanitarian programs in, in the United States. And it's a program that I think maybe is misunderstood or um, not really utilized to the extent that I think it should be as a foreign policy tool that really promotes our national security and foreign policy interests overseas. So the 30,000 number is really um, the lowest number we've ever seen since the start of the Refugee Emissions Program in 1980 with the passage of the Refugee Act. So the program concertedly started, and in the early 1980s, we saw hundreds of thousands 
of uh, refugees coming into the United States in a single year. In fact, in uh, 1981, 1982, we saw nearly 200,000 refugees being resettled, um, really as a response to the Indochina conflict that was happening in the Vietnam War. And President Ronald Reagan admitted around 90,000 refugees um, when he was president. And pretty much every subsequent president since then admitted around 80 to 90,000 refugees per year. Now, last year, the number was around 45,000. And that was a significant reduction from the um, 110,000 refugees that the Obama administration had set as their ceiling for, um, for the fiscal year. And so that number got reduced to 45,000 last year, and now it's even further reduced to about 30,000 for FY 2019. And when Secretary Pompeo announced the decision for 30,000, he basically gave several rationales for why this number. The primary reason is that he said that the United States is already receiving a large number of asylum seekers at our border. And so he said that the United States is already the most generous nation when it comes to humanitarian immigrants. But I think his statement is, I think it needs qualification because when the Secretary states that we're the most generous nation in the world when it comes to humanitarian immigration, that's true when it comes to total numbers. Yes, we re- we resettled the largest number of refugees. And yes, we have received the largest number of asylum seekers on our border. But when you compare those numbers to our population, it's literally a drop in the bucket. A lot of countries around the world, including in Germany and in Australia, Canada, places in the Middle East like Jordan and Turkey, are by far resettling as well as receiving a larger number of individuals who are seeking protection than the United States of America per capita. The other thing I've heard oftentimes in meetings with the State Department around this number has been the fact that, well, you know, they say, well, the refugees shouldn't come to the United States. They should stay in the region where they're from. And why would they want to come to the United States of America when they eventually want to go back home? To a certain degree, yes, refugees most oftentimes do want to go back home and they should go back home if the conditions allow for them to do so. But the Refugee Resettlement Program is really targeting a small number of individuals who are the most vulnerable, who actually cannot return home and who have no likelihood of returning home anytime in the near future. I live in Baltimore, Maryland, where I've gotten to know a Syrian refugee family. It's um, dad and a mom with four children. Now, the mom and two of the kids um, have a blood disorder in which they basically needed blood transfusions pretty much monthly after arriving to Baltimore City. They have specifically told me that if they had stayed in Jordan, that it's likely that their two kids would have passed away and the mother herself would have maybe passed away because they did not have access to the medical treatment that they needed to survive. So this family, since coming to the U.S., has thrived. They've been surrounded by churches that have loved on them and that have supported them. And, you know, the mom cries often discussing her children's medical cases because she knows how vulnerable they, they could have been if they had stayed overseas. And so the other thing, the State Department has said that they have an agenda to promote international religious freedom. And I think it's a ambitious and I think it's a laudable goal for them to do so. But I think by them closing the door on refugees coming into the United States is undercutting their agenda to promote international religious freedom. Because by shutting the door, basically, by making the number so low, we're seeing such a significant decline in the number of persecuted Christians in particular who are able to come into the United States of America. Uh, How many asylees do we accept a year, do you think? Or what's the ballpark figure? 
right now there's a significant backlog in the number of asylum applications that are pending with the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service, USCIS. But in fiscal year 2016, we granted 20,455 individuals asylum in the United States. And so the average between 2007 and 2016 for those granted asylum in the United States is 23,669. So that's a pretty small number um, and a lot smaller than the refugee settlement numbers that we're seeing during those years, which was between 60 to 80,000 refugees per year. Now, if you combine those numbers, it's still less than 100,000, which is a very small percentage of our population. And so the fact that we are considering closing one door and opening another, potentially opening another, is just, again, I think it's, it doesn't make sense to me, the argument, because we're talking about two totally different populations. The other thing to note as well is that the individuals who are seeking asylum in the United States are coming from vastly different areas of the world. Like I mentioned before, a little over 40% of the asylum applicants recently have been from Central America as well as China, whereas most of the refugees that we're resettling are from areas around the world that are experiencing significant conflict like places in Africa and in the Middle East in which um, we're resettling the, those refugees from. I, I have editorialized on this, and I've made the rather broad statement that I, I think that uh, the U.S. has the capacity to welcome a lot more refugees slash immigrants slash asylees. But actually, as I've been thinking about it, as you've been talking, I don't know that I, I that was a vague statement I made, and you, we've been throwing around numbers. Do people in your line of work have an idea of what would be a fair number of refugees, immigrants, asylees to welcome into the country in a way that could they could be uh, integrated into our society? Because I know one of the criticisms of European immigration policy is they uh, they haven't done a very good job of integrating refugees and immigrants and led to uh, some serious social problems. And I'm just wondering, is there a limit in your head about, I know we're not even close to it, but I would just be interested in hearing from you what you think our capacity is. Sure. Well, I think the issue of capacity is a good one. Um, the United Nations has said in this past year that they believe that 1.2 million individuals are in need of resettlement worldwide. And what we've said, our world belief, is that we believe the U.S. should take about 10% of that population, um, which would be around 100,000 individuals. And so I think the reason for that is because that's traditionally been the number that the United States has received over the many years of resettlement. We have been the country that has received uh, and resettled the most number of refugees worldwide, even though per capita, again, other countries are actually doing a lot more in terms of sheer numbers, we are resettling the highest number. When you look at the network of support and agencies across the country that have been resettling refugees, um, World Relief is one of nine agencies currently that is partnering with the State Department to resettle refugees. And so we have partnered with churches all across the country. We resettle in 20 different cities all across the U.S., always in partnership with a local church to receive these refugees. And we've, over the past year, have received more voluntary um, volunteer applications than we've ever seen. We have have partnered with thousands of churches who have effectively said that they want to help and and receive more refugees than we're currently getting. And the question we get oftentimes from pastors is, well, how come there aren't more Syrian refugees coming? And why is it that we're seeing certain nationalities but not others? And how can I partner with you guys to welcome refugees in my community? And the interest we get from churches that are wanting World Relief to open up an office in their own city is really overwhelming, and it's pretty tremendous. And so 
the capacity of the United States to resettle these refugees is is significantly strong, um, especially when agencies like World Relief partner with local communities and local churches to do such work. I would also say that the New American Economy is a think tank that actually did a study um, surveying the economic contribution of refugees. And what they found is that refugees, among any other category of immigrants, are the most entrepreneurial. And they've actually found that refugees contribute to the U.S. economy more than they take in government services in the initial years over a decade. And so it really goes to show that when refugees come into the United States, they're absorbed, they're received well, um, and they really thrive and contribute to their communities once they get here. You know, it's interesting, Jenny, that you mentioned that you had been hearing from churches so much in this past year. Earlier this June, there was data that came out from Pew that showed that only 25 percent of white evangelicals said that the U.S. had a responsibility to accept refugees. In the numbers, by comparison for white mainland Protestants were 43 percent, Catholics were 50 percent, and black Protestants were 63 percent. It's just interesting to hear the anecdotal evidence of what you're seeing compared to what we've seen in some of these statistics. Yeah, that that statistic is is noteworthy, and I remember when I saw it, I was surprised and heart, you know heartbroken. So at World Belief, we have partnered with a lot of churches to do the work of refugee resettlement, but we've also gotten emails and communications from individuals who don't necessarily agree with what we're doing and who don't believe that we should be resettling refugees at all. So it really cuts across the board. But I would say the majority of individuals that we are working with are folks who have expressed an interest and a desire to want to welcome refugees. And I do think that within the evangelical community in particular, that a lot of the the fear around refugees and this this question is really um, just misinformation and the politicization of this issue. Like you were saying, Morgan, this program was running under the radar with the support of both parties and of large communities really without issue. But because over the past couple of years, the rhetoric around immigrants and refugees in particular has taken on, taken on a national um, spotlight, I think it's it's automatically um, put into people's minds the, this idea that refugees are somehow people to be feared or they're harmful to our country, which is not a narrative that was, I would say, prominent, I think, even after 9-11. And so I think there's a lot of work that we have to do, not just to educate Christians around this issue, but to really equip them to know how to respond well. The other thing to take into account is, generally speaking, the pollsters don't make a distinction between people who identify themselves as the evangelical and those who actually go to church and have a regular and vibrant Christian life. So the people from whom you're getting support are likely people who go to church and have heard about world relief and hear about these sort of issues. The differences between the two groups on many social issues is quite dramatic, in fact, but they tend to get lumped together. So I think that would qualify the numbers well in some ways. Hey, this is Morgan from Quick to Listen, and today we are talking with Michelle Qureshi. Michelle was married to the late apologist Nabil Qureshi, and the third edition of his memoir, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, is out now. So, Michelle, I know that the last couple years have been extremely painful for your family and really hard in many ways. Where have you seen God work despite the suffering and hardship of the past couple years? You know, in more ways than I can count, I've seen God at work. For one thing, I've been blown away by how extensively the body of Christ can come together and serve someone who's in need. I had just never even seen that before until it was happening to me. 
And Nabil's parents are more receptive than ever to Christians after spending three months in our household last year, seeing firsthand the way that Nabil's and my community demonstrated self-sacrificial love to us. Also, as I continually have to surrender this pain to God, he's teaching me invaluable lessons about patience, trust, forgiveness, compassion, I mean, just to name a few. Michelle was married to the late apologist Nabil Qureshi. The third edition of his memoir, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, is available to order now. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. So what do you make of the reports that I hear uh, from Germany in particular and other European countries that there has been a tremendous inflow of refugees into countries, but it's led to some deep and abiding kind of social tensions? Yeah, I've heard this concern from a lot of folks about how some European countries are are not integrating, how the refugees go there and they're causing a lot of trouble. Um, and I think the European experience is a bit different than the U.S. experience in a couple ways. In Europe, what you're seeing actually is that a lot of asylum seekers are arriving into Europe and um, they're not necessarily being screened beforehand. And so when you talk about refugees being resettled to the U.S. and individuals going into Europe, it's a completely different process. The U.S., uh, we pre-screen the refugees, we make sure they're well vetted, and then we have them accompanied by refugee resettlement agencies that partner with local communities to resettle them. And so in Europe, you're talking about large numbers that are going and seeking asylum. Um, the other thing I would say is that a lot of um, European cities have um, passed restrictive laws that even impinge upon the religious freedom of some of these individuals. Um, so for example, in, in France, there's been ongoing discussions about um, whether or not individuals can wear a hijab um, in schools, um, even though that in the United States, I, I think would um, be something that would impinge upon an individual's religious freedom is um, a religious piece of clothing or cultural clothing that they wear that is a part of the identity, which they're not, um, which they're inhibited from wearing as a matter of promoting um, integration in that community. The other thing I've heard as well is that Many um, immigrants are really going into communities in which they are um, banding together, but not really um, building relationships with people outside of that community. And I think um, in the United States, what we're seeing is that, at least in our experience at World Relief, when refugees arrive, um, that they're actually being integrated and building relationships with churches and with communities and others that are really helping them go outside of just what's comfortable to them culturally and really um, having those relationships helps these refugees feel more welcomed and a part of that community as well. So I do think the U.S. has a very um, strong model when it comes to refugee settlement as well as just our promotion and, and respect for religious freedom that I think has significant implications for how immigrants um, generally are able to integrate in, in the U.S. I think another thing we've got going here in the U.S. as opposed to a lot of European countries 
We were not founded in a sense organically, like most uh, European nations. We were founded on a set of principles. So to become an American is to be able to agree to a a few principles. It's hard to know what it means to be a British person or what it means to be a Swedish person. I think that, I think we have an advantage there. We have a much clearer idea what we hope people will will start to believe and they'll start to believe in kind of the democratic process if they come here. So I do think there are some huge differences. I do think that the U.S. um, leadership is really important here because just in the past year alone, as the U.S. numbers have starkly declined, we've seen a 50% drop in the number of resettlement slots for refugees worldwide. The last year of President Obama's administration, he held a refugee summit at the United Nations. And out of that summit, we were able to secure many more countries to do resettlement and increase the number of refugees that were resettling, um, with the U.S. saying that we wanted to accept 110,000 refugees. As the U.S. closes its door, the world is closing its doors as well. And so I think we have to be mindful that it's not just about us resettling a lesser number of refugees. Um, There's other countries that are following our footsteps and then also not resettling a higher number. What we do as the United States or what we don't do has significant ramifications around the world. So what can we do if we can only let in 30,000, but we have more people here that want to help refugees? What can they do if they can't welcome a refugee in their own community? What type of things can they do to help refugees worldwide? Yeah, well, I think, um, again, understanding that most refugees will never be able to resettle to the U.S., uh, we think that ref- just giving to organizations like World Relief that are serving refugees overseas is is really important. There's a lot of organizations doing incredible work to help refugees where they are, um, just providing for their basic assistance, um, food and shelter uh, in general is, is really important. So I know at World Relief, we've been working with refugees and displaced persons in the Middle East, in Jordan and in Africa, in Burundi and Kenya and other places. And even in Indonesia, we have an office there that has helped um, Iranian and Iraqi refugees in uh, Indonesia in detention. Uh, So providing basic assistance to displaced persons overseas through ministries like World Relief, I think is really important. Um, The other thing I would say is I think for us as Christians, we have responsibility to shape the conversation based on our values and our beliefs. And so much of the conversation around in the United States around refugees has been one that's founded on a narrative of fear, I think, and fear of the unknown, fear of the other, fear of people who are different than us, um, especially those who are of a different religion. For us in the church, we have a responsibility to start changing the conversation, to promote the idea that everyone is made in the image of God, to promote this idea that we can be generous and secure at the same time, that they're not mutually exclusive values that we can be compassionate and promote national security at the same time as we've been doing since the founding of the program. And so I think for us to continue to raise our voice to say we can and should be doing more with administration is fundamentally important. The other thing I would say is that you know many refugees are already in the United States. And so even as we're seeing a declining number of refugees, we're still going to be resettling refugees, even if it's a smaller number. Um, so continue to seek out organizations in your local communities that are resettling refugees. And so even if it's a smaller number of people coming predominantly from Africa or Asia um, or other places, um, it's critically important that these people feel welcome. They've been through really horrific experiences in many cases and are looking for a community in which they feel really welcome. Thank you so much, Jenny, for just giving us so many good facts. I think that's like some of my favorite thing to give people. It's a present to all of our quick to listen listeners to give them information. And 
I appreciate you being able to just decomplexify something that is a relatively intricate system. For our listeners that have feedback, again, you can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. And if you want to go on Twitter, you can also leave it there, too. We're at CT Podcasts. All right. Now we are in the part of the show that we call Precious Moments. And everyone here gets to share something that is bringing them joy. You ready to go, Mark? Uh, Yeah. I will say that meeting... uh... With the Grace and Mercy Foundation in New York was really impressive. They are mostly a Korean organization of, of Korean Christians, and it was very impressive how how intent they were on making sure this group was intended helping a nation that's becoming increasingly illiterate uh, become more literate in hearing the Bible. And it wasn't just that they were uh, they think this is important. There was a passion there that I don't see in myself, and I don't see in a lot of my uh, friends and neighbors and relatives. So I was. Deeply grateful for that. I'm glad there that God has touched some people, especially the Grace and Mercy Foundation, with with this passion. So your advice to people is Google them. Google them. Find out more about Bible reading and community, Bible listening and community, and uh, see what you can do to support them. My newsletter is called The Galley Report. It is uh, published once a week. You can receive it at by going to Christianity Today slash The Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I Report. And I link to link to articles I find interesting, and then I comment on them, and then actually re- I've been receiving more and more comments from my from my readers, which is very helpful because even though a lot of them are very kind to say nice things, once in a while people push back, and I realize okay, I could have said that better, or I could have I could have done some more research before I did that link, or whatever. It's it's developing a little kind of community. It's very nice, Jenny. Well, as an Asian American Christian, um, I can say that we are very passionate, and uh, um, it's awesome that you you met with them. And I can tell you that the fervency of our faith is born. I think a lot of times out of suffering. I think a lot of immigrant communities have this vibrant faith because there's this dependence on God that comes out of struggle. And so, I think that's that's great that you experienced that when you're um, on your travels. I will say, I mentioned earlier that this is my first week uh, uh, back from maternity leave. I was gone for about three months taking care of my little son, Joel, who's three months now. I have a three-year-old son whose name is David, and just seeing them interact together has been really fun. And so um, my son's, my three-year-old son, David, is is just really funny. And so he's been asking, because we've been saying to him, oh, when you get older, you can play with Joel, and you can be a good older brother. And every day he asks, is Joel older today? Is Joel older today? Because he's like wants to play with him so so much, and it's just it's been funny to see this three year old um, process being an older brother and how affectionate he is and how just wonderful he is being an older brother. So that's just been a huge highlight for me over the past three months. Jenny, there's so many ways that I'm sure people can keep up with the work that you do at World Relief. Where do you want to point them? Sure. So I think our website, uh, worldrelief.org, has a plethora of information about how you can get involved, how your church can get involved. Follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook is all by the same name, World Relief. And then folks can also follow me um, on Twitter, Jenny Yang, W-R, which stands for World Relief. So it's J-E-N-N-Y-Y-A-N-G-W-R on Twitter. Um, You can find me on Instagram, although most of my posts are about my children who are really cute. So um, (laughs) just be warned uh, if you want a lot of images of young, cute babies, um, feel free to follow me. Uh, But uh, my Instagram 
a name is Jenny Yang 318. Jenny Yang 318. Very cool. So last week was the Religion News Association conference that took place in Columbus, Ohio. And I can't remember if I shared on the podcast or not that I went to Cincinnati, Ohio a couple weeks ago. And then I spent time in Columbus. And to be honest, I feel like Ohio has gotten a bad rap from some people that live in Illinois and some people live in Pennsylvania, which are two states that I've spent a substantial number of years in. And I don't really know why they both of those well, why Ohio got a bad rap, because I have enjoyed my time in both Cincinnati and Columbus. Both of these cities, as some people may know, have these scooters where you can essentially unlock the scooter on your cell phone and you can ride it around. They're electric scooters. So it's pretty fun. So I made sure I wanted to do that in Cincinnati. We ran out of time, but I made sure I did it when I was in Columbus last week. And I invite people looking for somewhere to go for a short period of time to go to Ohio. This was not paid for by the Ohio Tourism Board. <laughs> this is just my own experience. That's a cool place to go to. So check it out, Cincinnati and Columbus. All right, people can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. It has been great to have you. You can get this podcast almost everywhere. You get podcasts by searching Quick to Listen. Thank you, everyone, who has rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts. I had the chance to check out some of these reviews for something else that I was working on couple weeks ago and I was really encouraged once again just reading the comments that you all have left so thank you so much our theme music is by sweeps and this podcast is produced by myself and Richard Clark and Cray Allred who are all awesome as a reminder if you want to support the podcast you can do so by going to morect.com slash podcast that's morect.com slash podcast and we will see you all next week bye This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.